Uh, I was thinking this week uh, that really for the most part I'm not a big fan of surprises. Uh, when I was a kid, I was one of those children that uh, used to kind of ransack the house uh, in the lead up to every birthday and Christmas uh, to try and find any presents that my parents might have hid. And uh, I tried to come up with all sorts of strategies, but usually I managed to track down the presents. Uh, when uh, I was preparing to propose to Gabby, uh, I, you know, I'd saved up the money, uh, I'd bought the ring, I had it in my possession for a few days, I had this kind of elaborate plan of how I was going to propose, uh, and uh, in that period of time from when I had the ring to when I actually popped the question, uh, Gabby, of course, was able to work out uh, exactly what, when I was going to do it, what I was going to do, uh, because I'm just so not that great at keeping surprises. Uh, when Gabby was pregnant with Ada, this is another example, uh, we didn't find out whether Ada was going to be a boy or a girl. Uh, and that was kind of okay. Uh, but I, I, when it came to uh, kind of time for when Gabby was pregnant with Charlie and with Felix, I, I kind of said, well, I think it's good to find out for the sake of for the sake of Ada, for the sake of Charlie, but truth be told, it was good for me too uh, to prepare, to kind of know what was going on, uh, because I'm, not, I, I'm just not someone who's a big fan of surprises. And I wonder uh, if there are some people here who can relate a bit to that as well. It's not that all surprises are bad. Uh, for example, if you came up to me after church today with a, a bar of chocolate or a nice gift uh, and I wasn't expecting that, I'd probably still be okay, right? So uh, uh, not all surprises are bad, uh, but there are some surprises that are pretty hard to swallow, aren't there? Unexpected things, shocking things, the unexpected medical diagnosis, the surprise loss of your job, of the relationship you expected to go on forever, but then it, it just falls apart. Of the event that you've been planning for ages and ages, and then it seems to completely bomb. Of the person you loved who unexpectedly died. Of the exam that you've been studying for for ages, and then you fail. Right? These are the kind of surprises that we're not big fans of. I'm not saying we should be fans of those things. All of them are quite unpleasant, aren't they? Uh, but for me, when these sort of surprises come along, and even less intense ones, uh, part of the reason why I don't like them is because I really like being in control. Maybe you're the same. I, I like to know exactly what's going on, not just now, but in the future. Uh, I don't want anything unexpected to happen. I, I want to have my, my hands around things. And when, I'm, when I feel like things are kind of spinning out of control, I desperately cling on trying to get things back under control so that I can feel less worried and stressed. So I'm not, I'm not a, a big fan of unexpected things, of surprising things in many ways. Uh, which is sometimes a bit tricky when it comes to being a Christian. Because when you read the, the gospel accounts about Jesus, the, the biographies of Jesus' life, uh, the truth is you, you come across, uh, you meet a Jesus who's full of all sorts of surprises. And just when you think you've sorted Jesus out, you know, put Jesus in a neat little box and wrapped him up and put a kind of bow on top, I've got Jesus covered, he, he does something completely unexpected. Uh, some of those surprises are, are really wonderful surprises, things that, that you just kind of blow your mind in a really positive way. And other surprises, are just, they're just really shocking. They're unexpected. They're harder to get your head around. And today's passage is full of all sorts of surprises. Some of them are really good, and some of them quite shocking. And not all of them might seem immediately surprising to you, as Jared read through that passage. 
Uh, but they were certainly surprising uh, when Matthew first wrote his gospel. So we're going to look at three stories. Each of them contain really surprising and shocking elements. Uh, uh, the first, uh, first, let's look at this uh, surprising encounter uh, between Jesus and a Gentile woman. Uh, this is verses 21 uh, to 28. Uh, if you look at, at verse 21, you'll see that the encounter starts with Jesus taking a surprising trip. Uh, Matthew says, uh, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon. We've got to ask ourselves, why would Jesus go there? Right? This, uh, it's a very strange place for a Jewish teacher or leader to go, uh, a man like Jesus, because uh, it's a region that's almost exclusively full of non-Jewish people. Uh, of Gentiles. Right? So why would Jesus go there? Well, maybe Mark's Gospel helps us out. If you've got a Bible, as Jared mentioned, there might be one near you. Uh, you could flick to Mark chapter 7. This is the kind of parallel account uh, of this same story in Mark's Gospel. Mark 7, verse 24. Uh, Jesus, uh, Mark records it like this. He says, Jesus left that place and went uh, to the vicinity of Tyre. Uh, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it which is an interesting detail. It seems like Jesus goes into this region first and foremost because he wants some privacy. You remember in the previous chapters of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has tried two or three times to get some rest and he keeps being interrupted by the crowds, the Jewish crowds. So he thinks, well, I'll go over here to this Gentile region for some time of rest. And perhaps he also goes there because he wants some time to teach his disciples, some extra time with his disciples. You might remember in the previous chapters that Jesus, uh, maybe it's a bit much to say he's frustrated, but it seems like he's getting a bit frustrated with his disciples because they're just not joining the dots on who he is. You remember, if you flick back in the previous chapters, you'll remember that Jesus was a bit frustrated that they somehow thought he wouldn't be able to feed the, the crowd of 5,000. He said, you give them something to eat. You know, don't send them away to villages. And they doubted that he'd be able to walk on water. You of little faith, he said to his disciples. And then they struggled to grasp his teaching last week about what's spiritually clean and unclean. You remember Jesus said to them, are you so dull? Like, Don't you guys get this? It's pretty basic, Jesus is saying. So in this passage, Jesus uh, retreats, uh, uh, as it were, uh, into this kind of Gentile territory uh, because he wants some time to rest with his disciples uh, and he wants some extra time to teach his disciples. Now that's important because I think first and foremost, Jesus doesn't go into this region because he particularly plans to minister to the Gentiles in this region. Right? Not right now anyway. Right, right now, his intention is to have some time to rest and to teach his disciples. And yet, it is significant that Jesus goes into this region for a time of rest. Right? This is the only time in, in any of the Gospels uh, that Jesus is recorded as leaving uh, geographical Israel, uh, going outside of Israel. And of course, any Jew, any Jewish leader who was kind of worth their salt, who was serious about their faith, they would absolutely never leave Israel. Because what would happen when you leave Israel? You have to associate with Gentiles. And that meant being, uh, risking being spiritually contaminated, you see. You become spiritually unclean. So even though Jesus has no real plan or intention of ministering to the Gentiles in this region, at least not when he first sets out, 
Uh, his willingness to enter this region is very significant. Because it shows us that, that things are starting to shift in God's kind of purposes of salvation. The doors kind of uh, kind of closing on the people of Israel, in a sense. Uh, the Jewish leaders are largely rejecting Jesus, plotting to, to crucify Jesus. Uh, and the doors being opened up to the nations. Uh, and that's what we'll see uh, in particular in the second half of Matthew's Gospel. The Gentiles, people like you and I, people who aren't Jews, uh, will be included in God's kingdom. Uh, the other thing that's worth noting, worth noting about the context here uh, is that this story comes straight after verses 1 to 20. Oh, not rocket science, verse 21 comes after verses 1 to 20. Uh, but you remember uh, that uh, Jesus last week had that conflict with the Jewish leaders about what was spiritually clean and unclean. So Matthew deliberately places this story right here in his gospel uh, to show us that, that Jesus wasn't just talking the talk last week. Jesus is someone who walks the walk when it comes to this stuff. He goes into this unclean Gentile territory because he has this uh, a different understanding of what makes people and things spiritually clean or unclean. So if you take a look at verse 22, for example, at uh, the start of this encounter with the Gentile woman, uh, there's at least three things just in that one verse uh, that show us that Jesus is prepared to, in a sense, break all the Jewish rules uh, about what makes something spiritually clean or unclean. Uh, so first, uh, have a look. Uh, Jesus uh, is approached by a woman. And this is perhaps not necessarily making him spiritually unclean, but it is socially very inappropriate. Right here, in this day and age, women uh, were of a much, much lower social status than men. And it was simply unheard of that a woman would approach a man in public to speak to them like this. And yet Jesus actually responds to the woman. You might find his response shocking, we'll get to that later on. But he does at least respond to her. That's breaking all the Jewish customs. And notice that Jesus isn't just approached by any woman, but he's approached by a Gentile woman. A Canaanite woman, a woman who would have been considered by the Jews to be thoroughly unclean, born in and around this territory of Tyre and Sidon. And what else do you see about this woman? What's going on in her house, in her family life? This is a Gentile woman who has a daughter who's possessed by demons. Another way the Gospels speak about demon possession is that someone's possessed by an unclean spirit, an impure spirit, right? as opposed to the Holy Spirit. So clearly this woman and her daughter are spiritually unclean. Right? Matthew's included this encounter here as a bit of a test case of what Jesus just said in verses 1 to 20. Right? Jesus really does walk the talk when it comes to this stuff. He's got no, no, normally, uh, as kind of respected Jewish leader, would have absolutely nothing to do with this situation. And yet Jesus has no issues with it. Which is a surprising thing. It would have been very surprising for Matthew's first readers. And then in verse 22, we see in the context of this surprising trip that Jesus takes, uh, the, uh, the woman makes her surprising request. Have a look in verse 22. Uh, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to Jesus, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed uh, and suffering terribly. 
Uh, so geographically here, this region of Tyre and Sidon is right next door to Israel. Uh, so, so this is a woman uh, who, 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 although she's a Gentile, uh, would have been quite familiar with the beliefs and practices of the Jewish people. In particular, she would have known how Jewish leaders typically thought and felt about Gentiles. So it's very, very bold of this woman to, to not just approach a Jewish man in public, as we just spoke about, but to approach a Jewish uh, religious leader in public. Uh, at least that's probably the, the camp that she'd put, the box that she'd put Jesus in. Right? Like Jesus, this woman's breaking all the rules. And it's not just the Jewish rules, it's not just the Jews would have frowned upon this, but actually the Gentiles would have frowned upon this too. Well, what did the Gentiles believe about God and spirituality and stuff? They believed that there were lots of gods in the world. Why well, Many, many gods. And so why is this woman uh, approaching a, a teacher who's associated with the one true God of Israel for help? That's weird. Why isn't she praying to the God of her region for help? Why isn't she begging the God of her city for help? the gods of her ancestors for help. Instead, she's approaching the God of Israel for help. This is a really surprising interaction. And what's even more surprising is Jesus' response. Look in verse 23. Matthew says, uh, the woman comes with this kind of desperate request uh, and Matthew says Jesus didn't uh, didn't answer a word. Didn't say anything. Now, if you're someone who knows a bit about Jesus, you've read the Gospels a bit, That probably seems odd, doesn't it? Normally when Jesus is approached by someone who is kind of in desperate need by this, he's really eager to help and he helps as quickly as he can. So why doesn't he do that here? You'll notice that Jesus' disciples absolutely want him to help. And when you first read it, you might think, yeah, sure, you might think they actually care about the the woman and her daughter, but I don't think that's the case at all. They basically want Jesus to help because they want the woman to stop bugging them. Right? They say to Jesus, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. You know, Please help her, Jesus, because she's a pain in the neck. That's basically what they're saying. Like, she's, like We're supposed to be over here having a little retreat with you, a little bit of quiet time with the Lord Jesus, and this woman keeps yelling out from outside. It's annoying. Just give her what she wants and send her on her way. So in verse 24, Jesus says to his disciples, uh, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. You you might have thought that Jesus was speaking to the woman there, but I'm pretty sure he's speaking to the disciples. Uh, In fact, in the Greek, uh, verse uh, verse 24 actually starts with the word but, which is a shame that the NIV translation leaves that out. But, uh, because Jesus literally says, uh, the kind of flow of thought here is, oh, you guys say I should just grant this Gentile woman's request, whatever your motivation is, uh, but my father only sent me to the lost sheep of Israel, Jesus is saying. Now, in saying that, clearly Jesus isn't saying that that ultimately people outside of Israel uh, won't be a part of God's kingdom, won't be included in God's kingdom. Uh, If you remember the very end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus commands his disciples to go to the Gentiles, to go into all the nations and make disciples of his name. Jesus knows that's the plan. He's not silly. Uh, So he's not saying that, that God's kingdom is only for the Jews. 
Uh, but he is saying, uh, but he is saying that the focus of his earthly ministry was to be almost exclusively on the people of Israel. That's that's who his father sent me to. And if you read the Gospels, that's basically who Jesus interacted with for the most part. Right, Jesus knew that that he was going to die for the sins of the whole world. But in his earthly ministry, his focus uh, was on the lost sheep of Israel. So this woman overhears Jesus say this to his disciples. And she's undeterred. She perseveres. This is a desperate mum, you know? A mum with a daughter who's really sick. And so we see, we know that she kind of perseveres and she hears because verse 25 also starts with the word but, once again not there. So Jesus basically says this to his disciples. But, Matthew says, the woman came and knelt before Jesus saying, Lord, help me. Right? She stops shouting at Jesus from a distance and she comes and kind of throws herself desperately at Jesus' feet. She cries out to Jesus. You can feel the desperation. Deep respect for Jesus, desperate faith, saying, Lord, help me. And so you think, Jesus Jesus is going to be moved by that, right? But then Jesus says something even more shocking. Verse 26. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Like, that's the Jesus you know and love, right? It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. It just seems incredibly harsh, doesn't it? If not, kind of racist even. It feel, I mean, like, is Jesus, yeah. Jesus refers to this woman as a dog. How, what are we supposed to do with that? Some people think Jesus is just really getting frustrated here. You know, he said before he, he's come here just for some privacy, a time of rest, and now he's being interrupted again. You know, he's got a really long fuse, but everyone reaches the end of their tether eventually. That's what some people think. But of course, in the past, Jesus has been more than happy to be interrupted when he's been having a time of rest. And, and it's not like Jesus has anything inherently against the Gentiles. There are various interactions that Jesus has with people who are from a Gentile background and he's always, he always treats them with great dignity, with the utmost respect. Uh, he relates to them with real and, and deep compassion. It seems pretty unlikely that, that Jesus is just frustrated with this woman or that he's somehow got something inherently against the Gentiles. I think there's another explanation that, that fits much more consistently with Jesus' teaching and character. Uh, the first thing that's not quite clear in our English translations is that the word Jesus uses for dog uh, is more like, it's, it's not quite puppy, but it's more like puppy. You're thinking kind of domesticated family dog rather than uh, unclean, scruffy, stray street dog. Right? This is a much-loved family pet. That's the idea here. And Jesus picks this illustration because it would have been very familiar to this woman, right? It was very common for Gentile families uh, to keep a pet dog like this. Uh, maybe you've got a dog like this. I don't know. Like the dog, it's kind of like so much part of the family that it's there when the, the family's sitting around having their meal. And every now and then a few scraps get, you know, the, the meal's prepared for the children. Uh, but every now and then a few scraps get thrown off the edge of the table. That's what used to go on in the average Gentile home. And that's the context here. 
In fact, if you remember from Mark chapter 7, Jesus enters a house with his disciples. Uh, So it's quite possible that this woman actually interrupts a meal with Jesus and his disciples. So that's the context. In the context of what's going on here, Jesus is saying to this woman, you, you have to trust me. I know that the, I've got some insight into the divine plan of what's going on. The dogs will eat, he's saying. Which is to say, the good news of the gospel will be proclaimed to the Gentiles, to people like you. But not right now, Jesus is saying. Now's the time for my disciples to eat, for they are the children of Israel. The bread of life has first been offered to them, for that's who my Father sent me to, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So by referring to this woman as a dog, Jesus is saying uh, that right now she, she really has no right to his ministry, no right to, to have a place uh, at his table. Which maybe goes part of the way to explaining what's going on. But still, Jesus has heard the request. It's clearly very urgent. And it feels still a little bit callous to say, well, why don't you just wait for God's divine timetable to roll out? You know, like you're just a little bit early. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, uh, to be honest, it's, it's hard to be sure exactly why Jesus refuses uh, initially, but I think it's because he's testing her motives. Uh, it wasn't uncommon in the Gentile world for there to be uh, kind of what were known as miracle workers, uh, whether they were working with kind of uh, evil spiritual powers or whether they were just kind of putting on spectacular magic shows. I'm not sure, but certainly people flocked to these Gentile miracle workers uh, and the main purpose of their miracles uh, was to get people to be amazed at them uh, and to be kind of put on a marvellous spectacle. Uh, and Jesus knows that that's not why he does miracles. He's not going to heal this woman's daughter uh, simply to, to put on a great spectacle for her. Uh, he, he does miracles to reveal who he is. He does miracles to lead people to put their faith in him. So it seems like Jesus refuses this woman's request, at least initially, because he's testing her faith. And I think that's where the passage leads us. You know, verse 27, we see the woman's faith, don't we? The woman boldly says to Jesus, Yes, it is right, Lord, uh, because even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus is blown away by her faith. Verse 28, Woman, uh, you have great faith. Your request is granted. Uh, And her daughter was healed at that moment. Uh, The woman's response in verse 27 is pretty amazing. It shows us that this woman, a Gentile woman, understands what it means to have faith in Jesus, but perhaps even better than Jesus' own disciples, or at least some of them. I notice first that that even though Jesus says something pretty shocking to this woman, she's not offended by Jesus. She doesn't say to Jesus, how dare you talk to me like that? You can't say that about me. I don't like what you're saying. I don't feel right about that. Oh, I deserve a place at this table as much as any of these others. Oh, she doesn't say that to Jesus. She simply says, yes, Lord. Which is really pretty incredible. There's a sense in which she doesn't contest the fact that she's, spiritually speaking, like a dog. 
that she doesn't deserve a place at this table. She knows that. She knows that she's not deserving of a spot at this table because she knows uh, that she's a sinful person. She doesn't deserve a, a spot at the place, a, at the table of a holy and pure God. She, she knows that apart from Jesus, she is spiritually unclean. So she's incredibly humble, this woman. And it's that humility that's really right at the heart of what it means to put your trust in Jesus. And the great paradox of the Christian faith is that only, it's really only when you accept and admit and confess that, that spiritually speaking, you're really nothing more than an unclean dog under God's table. Uh, that you can be elevated to be a precious, dearly loved child who sits at God's table. Right? That, that's the, the pathway to being a child of God. It, you go past being a dog to being a child. Right? This woman gets that. She's incredibly humble. She's also incredibly bold. Uh, because with the, a real tone of respect, she kind of pushes back to Jesus, pushes back on Jesus. You see that? She, she knows how the average Gentile home works. She knows that even though the food on the table is primarily for the kids, the dog still gets to, to share some of the crumbs, some of the scraps. So she, says to, so she says to Jesus, Jesus, I know I don't deserve a place at your table. I get that. I get that I'm just a dog. But I also know that even a few crumbs from your table will sort things out with my daughter. Even a few crumbs is going to satisfy me. Because what's on your table is so wonderful, so abundant, that all I'm asking for is a few crumbs. Right? She's incredibly humble because she knows that she's deeply sinful. And yet she's incredibly bold. But because she knows that Jesus' love and grace and mercy are so abundant, that just a, just a tiny bit of it, just a few crumbs, will be enough for her and her daughter. So this woman provides us with a really wonderful picture of what it means, of what it looks like to put your trust in Jesus. Christians ought to, at least, have this wonderful mix of humility and boldness. Humility and, and, pers- and security and confidence. And that's because, as Christians, we're saved by grace. Grace, it's a gift that we don't deserve. So we, we, uh, we should be humble because we know that we're not worthy of this gift and yet we should be bold because we know that the God freely offers us, offers us this gift despite our unworthiness. Right? This is unique to Christianity. You think about other forms of religion and spirituality that you know of. Every other form uh, says, that, uh, uh, says that you are worthy of salvation, you're worthy of heaven, you're worthy of paradise, you're worthy of a good rebirth, you're worthy of enlightenment, uh, enlightenment uh, because of your good works. Right? That's, that's the criteria, and of course that only leads to pride. I look down my nose at you, I'm better than you, my works are better than yours, I'm saved and you're not. Right? A religion based on works leads to pride, not humility. Uh, All those religions say uh, you're unworthy of salvation or heaven or enlightenment or paradise because of your bad works, which only leads to despair, not security or confidence or boldness. Christianity is unique because it's based on grace, not works. 
It has this power to, to produce in your life, like we see in this woman, uh, a unique mix of humility and boldness. Humility, but because you understand that you're deeply sinful, uh, but boldness and confidence and security because you understand that in Christ you're deeply loved. And this is what we all want. And it's right there for you uh, if you trust in Jesus like this woman. So that's this surprise encounter with the Gentile woman. Uh, I spent heaps more time on that. The other two stories will be much quicker. Uh, Verses 29 to 31, uh, we see uh, this surprise healings of the Gentile crowds. Uh, Jesus uh, stays in Gentile territory, verse 29. Uh, He heads south uh, along the the Sea of Galilee. uh, And Mark's Gospel tells us he heads here into the region of the Decapolis. Uh, Deca, you meaning ten, right? So that's like decade. Uh, And polis meaning city, like I guess that's where politics comes from, that kind of thing. Uh, And so here this region is the home of ten large Gentile cities. Uh, So these crowds that are flocking to Jesus here are all Gentiles. right? The implication being, uh, so all these people being healed are Gentiles, uh, the implication being, as we just saw with the woman, uh, that God's kingdom will indeed be open to the nation. That we're in this time of transition. That people of every nation will come to Jesus and be restored and find healing. And notice that the specific healings that Matthew mentions, verses 30 and 31, the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others were laid at Jesus' feet and he healed them. Other people were amazed. When they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. Why were, why were the people amazed? We just said they weren't just amazed because the miracles were spectacular. They were amazed but because the miracles revealed something about Jesus. Even these Gentiles who lived right next door to Israel probably had some familiarity with the great promises of the Old Testament. Maybe some of them knew that in Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah prophesied about what would happen when God's king came. When the Messiah came, right? When uh, the one came to establish and rule over God's kingdom. Uh, And Isaiah said this in Isaiah chapter uh, chapter 35. Uh, He said in verse 4, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. What's going to happen when God comes to save his people and establish his kingdom? Isaiah 35 verse 5, Well, uh, then the eyes of the blind will be opened. Tick. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Tick. Uh, then the lame will leap like a deer. Tick. Uh, and the mute will shout for joy. You, you see, the crowds are amazed because they get it. Jesus is the Messiah. He's ticking every box you expect to happen when God comes in the flesh to rescue his people. That's why the crowds are amazed. Uh, and so this, once again, is a wonderful assurance to us that, that uh, as people who aren't Jews, uh, the people who are a part of the nations of every tribe and language and tongue, uh, we can be assured that God's kingdom is for us. Uh, the people of every nation are welcome into Jesus' kingdom uh, to find healing and hope in knowing him. Uh, Finally, we've got Jesus' surprise feeding of the crowds in verses 32 to 39. And I'm not going to spend as much time on this. It's kind of a great passage. uh, But it's very, very similar to Jesus' feeding of the Jewish crowds back in chapter 14. Uh, So I'm just going to show you some of those similarities really briefly. Uh, Verse 32. 
And you'll see that, that Jesus feels compassion for these Gentile crowds. And you might remember that Jesus felt compassion for the crowds back in uh, chapter 14. Uh, verse 33, the disciples say, how are we going to feed such a massive crowd? Uh, especially, note that, especially because we're in a remote place. You remember back in chapter 14 that there were all those connections to the story of God with his people, Israel, in the wilderness, in a remote place. Uh, so here, once again, we have God with his people, or Jesus uh, as God with his people in the wilderness, in a remote place. Uh, verse 34, uh, his disciples say, uh, how many loaves and fish do you, uh, Jesus says, how many loaves and fish do you have? Uh, and his disciples say, not many. I like, verse, I like chapter 14. Jesus asked the crowds to sit down on the grass. Same, verse 35. Uh, he, he gives thanks for the bread. He breaks the bread. It's distributed by his disciples. Everything exactly the same as chapter 14. There's leftovers exactly the same as chapter 14. They all eat and are satisfied exactly the same as chapter 14, which is exactly the point. That Jesus is the one, the true bread of life sent by God down to the earth who will satisfy the deepest spiritual hungers, not just of the people of Israel, chapter 14, but the people of every nation, of every tribe and language and tongue. It's what Jesus said to the woman as well, isn't it? Now's the time for the children of Israel to eat the bread of life. Right? For, for them to, to be offered Jesus and come to him and be satisfied in knowing him. But there will be a time when the bread of life, the Lord Jesus through the preaching of the gospel, will be offered to the nations. And they will come to him in faith and find satisfaction for their souls in knowing him. So this meal is just a foretaste of that great taking of the gospel to the nations. So in this passage we've got these three stories uh, that all show us in various ways that God's king and his kingdom are quite surprising. Maybe, as I said, not all of those things are as equally surprising for you, uh, but in their, in their original day, they were very surprising. God's kingdom surprising first uh, because all sorts of people can be a part of it. It's incredibly inclusive. It doesn't matter what gender you are, what race you are, what, what class you are, what socio-economic, uh, yeah, what socio-economic class you are, what culture you are, how intelligent you are, what level of education you have. It doesn't matter about any of that. God's kingdom is open to you. You're welcome in God's kingdom. It's incredibly inclusive because it's based on grace, a free gift, not works. It's based on Jesus and who he is, not us and who we are. So everyone's welcome. Uh, but more than that, God's kingdom is surprising uh, because all these different people are welcome in the kingdom uh, because of the death of the king. That's odd. Right? Well, one of the great unanswered questions of passages like this in the Gospels uh, is how can unclean people like these Gentile crowds be welcomed into the kingdom of a holy and pure God? How can that happen? Does God just turn a blind eye to everything? More personally, how can unclean people like us, listen to last week's sermon, how can unclean people like us be welcomed into, a kingdom of a holy, into the kingdom of a holy and pure God? How is that possible? Well, it's possible because of this box. Did we get this box ready? I didn't check before the service, actually. Maybe we didn't get it. Oh, wonderful. There it is. And not really because of this box, but what, what this box, maybe the truths that this box explains. 
Alright, talk there. You can see on the left side of the box, uh, you, you've got the, the words unclean and child. Uh, and on the right side of the box, you, you've got, uh, sorry, unclean and dog. And on the right side, you've got the words child and clean. Uh, and the point is that the people like us can only be welcomed into God's kingdom because Jesus is willing to switch boxes with us. Jesus, the only true child of God, you see, the eternal Son of God, the one who lived the perfectly clean and righteous and blameless life, Jesus was willing to be crucified like a dog on a cross for all of our uncleanness, for all of our sin. So that we, who spiritually speaking are more like the unclean dogs under God's cable, can be elevated to be children, precious children of God who sit at his table and can continually feast on God's love and grace and mercy to us in Christ. But this is the real surprise of God's kingdom. Not that Jesus takes surprising trips or says kind of shocking things every now and then, though those things are surprising. But the real surprise is that Jesus would give his life for you. That Jesus would be willing to die for you, to pay the punishment that you deserve that you might receive what he deserves. We can take that box down now. Thank you. Uh, this sermon series is titled The Unexpected King. It's because Jesus is full of surprises. And the, the reason he's full of surprises, as I started a few weeks back, is that Jesus is not just some great moral teacher or your personal life coach or uh, the founder of a world religion. He's not just those things. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 1.23, God himself in human form. And that means, uh, that, uh, and that, means that you can't uh, put Jesus in a neat little box in as much as I kind of did in a little diagram, right? But you can't put Jesus in a little box, even if it makes you feel more comfortable. You can't control Jesus or tame Jesus or domesticate Jesus. You have to receive Jesus as he is in the Gospels or you really don't receive him at all. You're just receiving your own made-up version of Jesus. A version that might make you feel more comfortable, that might be more palatable to you, but is not the real Jesus. Uh, it reminds me of that, that uh, scene out of the Chronicles of Narnia where uh, the children are talking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and they're talking about Aslan, you know? Uh, and, and the line is, isn't it, uh, is Aslan safe? Well, he's not safe. He's a lion. He's the king of the jungle. He's the ruler of all things. He's not safe. You can't tame him. You can't domesticate him. You can't control him. You can't put him in a neat little box. But he is good, they say. Right? Jesus is not safe. You can't tame him, you can't control him, you can't domesticate him. He's going, to be, he's going to surprise you, he's going to do shocking things. But the most wonderful surprise of all is that he gave his life for you on the cross. So you can be assured that he's good uh, in spite of all those surprises. Even if he sometimes surprises you uh, in ways that you find hard to stomach. Uh, so let me encourage you to keep uh, reading Matthew's Gospel so you can get to know the real Jesus. Uh, the Jesus who's full of surprises. Let me pray for us. Our gracious Father, we thank you uh, for your word to us uh, in, this, uh, in the Gospels. Uh, we thank you for how they reveal our Lord Jesus. Uh, we pray that our eyes, uh, even this day, would be opened all the more to who Jesus is and what he came to do. Uh, and that we would be prepared to trust him and, and receive him as he is. Uh, we thank you for the wo most wonderful surprise of, of all. 
uh, that uh, Jesus was willing to lay down his life for us, uh, to die the death of an unclean sinner in our place, uh, that we might be made clean, uh, that we who, spiritually speaking, are really nothing more than dogs begging for, for a few scraps under your table, uh, can be seated as your precious, dearly loved children at your table and feast continually on the abundant supply of your love and grace and mercy to us in Christ. Uh, in whose name we pray. Amen.